Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hello and welcome to episode 314 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for joining me again today for a shocking story that shows us the lengths that some people will go to to satisfy their lust for money from that viper pit of sordidness and corruption. Yep, you've guessed it. Reading. But before we start, as usual, thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially this week's new members of our community. That is Evie Rose, Lizelle Maver. And thank you too to Fiona Sullivan for increasing your level of support. I really appreciate it. No adverts today? I know, I know. Gutted, huh? So let's head straight to our guest of the month in year game. At number two in the UK charts was Avril Lavigne with Girlfriend. In the US, at number three was Beautiful Liar from Beyonce and Shakira. And in Australia this year, the top-selling album was the Buble. Hey, it's almost Christmas. It's Buble time with Call Me Irresponsible. In the news this month, it was the Virginia Tech massacre where the gunman killed 32 people and injured 23 others before committing suicide. In Russia, it was Boris Yeltsin's funeral. Australia won the Cricket World Cup in Dudley. Sorry, uh, Barbados. And the anchor-handling tug supply vessel, Warburton Dolphin, capsized in the North Sea. Seven people died in the tragedy. Did you guess the month and year? It was April 2007. Lyndon Scorfield was in his 40s and having the time of his life. Despite being unfortunate enough to have the looks of a UK politician, he was still living the life he'd always wanted and he felt he deserved. He was a banker working on impaired assets in the Reading branch of HBOS. He was earning about 90k a year plus bonuses, but he was living the lifestyle of someone earning considerably more as he was as corrupt as could be and loving what this money brought him. As we joined the story in 2005, Scorfield was heading off to a flat in Portman Square in central London for yet another sex party. He knew the flat well, he was there a lot, and there was even a special drawer where he kept his Viagra. And tonight he knew that one of his favourite sex workers, porn actress Susie Bess, was going to be there. Later that evening, Scorfield and his pals involved in his corruption, they were sitting around drinking champagne and smoking cigars, watching as two beautiful young sex workers bounce around on large plastic balls for their pleasure. The sex workers were of course being paid handsomely for their time. As is so often the case, Scorfield and his mates had become so full of their own self-importance that he'd forgotten that the women were only there for the money. One of them, Amber, was a regular at these parties and she later told how the men just watched us. I just ignored them and we did our thing. 
and even Susie Best was underwhelmed. Being paid £300 an hour for her time, being paid £300 an hour for her time, she described him as a short, balding Danny DeVito lookalike after one session at the rented flat in 2005. She continued that Scorfield, the man with the grey brushed back hair, asked her to go to the bedroom with him, but she didn't think he could get an erection at any stage. She called Scorfield and his pals the posh twat bankers and often met them at the flat in Portland Square, where she was expected to, in the parlance of Sunday tabloids, perform sex acts on some of the men and also performed in girl-on-girl shows for their pleasure. Another porn actress who was a regular at the flat kept a diary detailing a lurid show that she and three other women performed for Scorfield and his cronies later in 2005. An entry in her diary later read, Chinese meal, then drinks at flat and quick shag. Easy, £1,500. So just what was the fraud he was involved in? Well, like all frauds we hear about on this podcast, it was a simple one. From 2003 to 2007, Scorfield forced a number of businesses who relied on him for their corporate banking to employ a turnaround consultancy called Keysight to either help a business which was struggling or more often to try to help a profitable business become even more successful. Keyside as turnaround consultants offer business experience and expertise to help their small business customers make more money. But far from helping turn businesses around, Keyside was owned by Scorefield's pals David Mills, his wife Allison, and another man named Michael Bancroft. Mills and his company took huge fees and used their relationship with HBOS to bully the business owners and take their assets. A large amount of these fees were then transferred into a bank account owned by Scorefield's wife Jacqueline and some went to another HBOS banker, Mark Dobson. Once referred to the small business, Mills and Bancroft would create unrealistic and inflated cash flow forecasts and other financial figures. Scorefield would authorise substantial bank loans, much more than was needed, and which could never be repaid. And the companies felt they'd no choice but to accept, as Keyside made it clear that if they didn't do exactly as they were told, they would use their relationship with Scorefield to cut off their funding. Keyside would then put Mills or Bancroft on the board and when the firms collapsed into administration, Mills seized what assets were left and transferred them to his companies set up purely for this purpose. That was the Sandstone Organisation and Nightingale Investments. The effects on the small business owners were devastating. Nikki Turner and her husband Paul took out a loan for 160000 in 2003 to begin their music publishing company, Zenith Cafe. In 2004, they were introduced to Scorefields, who forced them to use Keyside. It was a disastrous move for them as Keyside gave terrible advice. They had no experience as a turnaround consultancy. They weren't qualified for it. And yet they still charged tens of thousands of pounds in fees for this advice. When Zenith was eventually forced out of business, 
the Turners were soon broke and had to sell their possessions to keep their house. They were appalled at how they'd been treated by HBOS and they wrote repeatedly to the bank, the regulators, the police and MPs. To say that HBOS weren't sympathetic is an understatement as they consistently denied doing anything wrong and amazingly they tried to repossess the Turner's home through 22 eviction hearings. Paul Turner said, It was a complete cover-up. The bank repeatedly attempted to mislead us, the other victims, our MPs and other authorities. What happened at HBOS Reading was fraud on an industrial scale. The couple estimate that the scandal cost them £11 million. Another victim was Joanne Dove, who ended up losing her £1.2 million business, her marriage, her savings, her home and her pension. She said, I can only liken my experience of dealing with HBOS appointed executives to how I would imagine dealing with the mafia would be. It was financial rape. I lost everything, my reputation, all our money, our pension schemes. My children lost their father in their lives and the idyllic childhood they previously had. Our family was devastated. They robbed me of my life's work. Her company, Cotton Bottoms, was doing exceptionally well by 2003, and due to expansion, she needed an extra £400,000 to manage the business. Scorefield approved the loan and insisted that she hire Michael Bancroft of Keyside as a non-exec director on her board. Keyside destroyed her company and eventually took ownership just as Joanne was expecting her fourth baby. She told how on one occasion Bancroft actually locked her in a room as he insisted she sign over a number of shares to him so that he had a controlling interest. Joanne said, I felt like a hostage. It was like having a huge parasite implanted in the guts of the business. At one stage, Bancroft even tried to get her husband to turn against her by offering him a new position as part of a secret deal. But in the end, rather than give in to Keyside, she ended up selling the once thriving business to a competitor at a fraction of its worth, destroying her financially in the process. Other victims included Andrew Reid, who was left £250,000 out of pocket after his company, Keynets, was ruined in a similar fashion by Keyside. He wrote to Victor Blank, the then chairman of Lloyd's TSB, at the time of its takeover of HBOS in 2008, telling him all about the Keyside's fraud. He'd spoken to other business owners and so managed to attach a detailed dossier describing how so many companies had suffered so badly at the hands of Scorefield and Keyside. Of course, being the responsible banker that he was, Blank took this information very seriously and immediately... No, sorry. The next day, Andrew received a letter from Blank's PA saying it would not be appropriate to respond to the issues raised by Andrew. Can you believe it? Actually, yes. The Bradman Lake Group were an engineering company based in Bristol who eventually went bust owing £36 million to HBOS. Another company, Claude, after having Keyside forced upon them 
went broke with debts in excess of 20.5 million. And Thai manufacturer Theros was left almost £21 million in debt to HBOS. And a 57-year-old farmer was crippled financially when Scorefield authorised a £375 loan and advised him to sell land and chicken coops on his Oxfordshire farm in 2004. The farmer had to remortgage his home when his loan rose by £7,000 after he'd paid £231,000 in interest and fees. And as all these hard-working business people suffered, Scorefield and his cronies continued to enjoy their lifestyle built on the hard work and ruined lives of others. Mills and Bancroft knew full well that Scorefield was the cash cow and had to be kept sweet, and they did all they could to keep him happy. Mills gave Scorefield an Amex card, which funded, among other things, a £6,000 three-day cruise between Nice and Saint-Tropez in October 2004, which was booked by Scorefield for himself and his wife, as well as the Millses. It also paid for a seven-day holiday for the Scorefields after boarding the Grand Princess cruise ship in Miami earlier that year, plus onboard expenses totaling almost £3,000, of which 1500 of that was spent in the shop's gift and jewellery shop. While in Barbados for Mills' wife's 40th birthday, Scorefield bought a top-end Cartier watch that cost more than £3,500. Scorefield spent more than £57,000 in total on jewellery, clothes and hotels during boys' jollies in Germany and the US with Mills. One 4K trip to Florida, taken by Mills and Scorefield, was paid on an Amex card from a struggling business that Keyside was supposed to be advising. And it wasn't just Scorefield. Of course the team at Keyside were doing very well indeed out of the arrangement. Mills and his wife Alison lived in a huge detached six-bedroom home with swimming pool, tennis court and a gym in Hertfordshire. To give you an idea of just how much money they were raking in, they also owned a £2 million 100-foot luxury super yacht called Powder Monkey, which was moored in the Mediterranean. As for Bancroft, he lived in a six-bedroom farmhouse in Warwickshire and had a villa in the Algarve. Interestingly about Bancroft, he had to leave his previous company under somewhat of a cloud after it was discovered he had used almost £700,000 of shareholders' cash to pay for his laundry model mistress, work on his family home and golf holidays. Come on, we've all done it. Scorefield's corrupt colleague Mark Dobson was also in on the act and he flew out with the rest of them to Bangkok for five days for Mills's 50th birthday, a trip that cost almost £15,000. And just to show the arrogance of Scorefield at the height of his fraud, when he applied for a mortgage with the Portman Building Society in 2004, Mills wrote to say he would receive up to £100,000 for consultancy fees from the Quayside Consultancy that year. Before we look at the inevitable ending, let's look at just how much money was defrauded. HBOS, which you'll recall was rescued by Lloyds Banking Group during the financial crisis, internally estimated 
the cost of Scorefield's lending activity as more than 300 million in early 2007. But this is a really conservative figure and didn't take into account the further losses after that date. Sources close to the investigation estimate that the total value of the fraud could be over three times that amount, closer to £1 billion. So how was Scorefield able to get away with it for so long? The process at HBOS was a second pair revised principle, which meant that all credit applications that Scorefield authorised should also have been checked over by his manager and senior director Paul Burnett. The very largest loan applications should have been escalated to the credit risk MD to check. But both of these people failed to do their jobs, despite Burnett actually seeing the figures, a failure which eventually saw him lose his job. It took until late 2006 when a new director of HBOS, Tom Angus, was appointed to oversee the area. After a few months in post, seeing clear warning flags, he asked to see all the paperwork showing authorisations for the lending that had been managed by Scorefield. Understandably, Scorefield tried to avoid this scrutiny, hoping that the problem would go away. But it didn't. And finally, in January 2007, Scorefield gave his new boss a bewildering array of paperwork, but it wasn't the authorizations he'd been asked to provide, because there weren't any. HBOS initiated a review of 38 struggling businesses that had received loans from Scorefield to the value of $375 million. Can you imagine how Scorefield felt during this time, knowing what the conclusion of this review was going to be? And sure enough, it revealed that the bank stood to lose up to £288 million from companies that had been working with Keyside on Scorefield's instruction. The day of reckoning finally came. It occurred at the company's Bishopsgate office in the City of London on the 8th of March 2007 and Tom Angus asked Scorefield to explain the findings of the review. Within hours, Scorefield had left the building with work-related stress and he never returned. HBOS suspended him for gross misconduct and he resigned in April 2007. Incidentally, the other corrupt banker, Mark Dobson, was dismissed in 2012 for gross misconduct. Let's look briefly at what happened next. Throughout 2007 and early 2008, HBOS conducted at least three reviews of what had happened in Reading, all finding evidence of misconduct and wrongdoing. In March 2008, Thames Valley Police received a number of allegations of criminality from customers of Scorefield. PC Phil Redmond from Thames Valley Police emailed the bank for a response. He received a reply saying that Lloyds, who had taken over HBOS, was not undertaking an investigation into Scorefield's conduct. He had no information that would support or substantiate any allegation of wrongdoing. Yep, you got it. They tried to tell those who'd been defrauded that nothing untoward had taken place. And true to form, the consistently useless serious fraud office refused to investigate. 
But Thames Valley Police did, and they launched Operation Hornet to look into the relationship between Scorefield and Keyside. It was a six and a half year complex investigation. Anthony Stansfield, the Police and Crime Commissioner of Thames Valley Police, believed that Lloyds could have done more to help the police. He said the bank made every effort to make it difficult for the police to investigate. Everything was put under legal privilege. It required a host of barristers and lawyers to untangle it and get it out of the bank, he said. Eventually, due to exceptional work from Thames Valley Police, the case did make it to court. Scorefield, known as Uncle Lynn, was described by Brian O'Neill QC, prosecuting, as a golden goose. He said, Lyndon Scorefield was the goose who was laying golden eggs. David Mills just had to keep feeding him, and feed him he did. At the end of the trial, 54-year-old Scorefield was found guilty and sentenced to 11 years and 3 months. David Mills got 15 years, his wife Alison 3 years, Bancroft was sent to prison for 10 years and the other corrupt banker, 57-year-old Mark Dobson, received four and a half years. There was standing room only in the courtroom for sentencing, which was packed with victims and their supporters and even some of the members who'd been on the jury. Applause and cheers from the public gallery rang around as the sentences were passed. Sentencing the judge said the case involved an utterly corrupt senior bank manager letting greedy people get their hands on vast amounts of bank money and their tentacles into ordinary and honest businesses. Letting them rip apart those businesses without a thought for the lives and livelihoods of those affected in order to satisfy their desire for money and the trappings of wealth. He said that Scorefield had not shown a shed of remorse for ruining the lives of the employers and employees of these companies. People haven't just lost money, but in some instances, he said, their homes, family and friends. People who could have expected to be comfortable in retirement were left cheated, defeated and penniless. The judge described Mills as a thoroughly corrupt and devious man, adept at exploiting the weaknesses of others. He is the devil to who you, Scorefield, sold your soul in exchange for sex, for luxury trips with or without your wife, for bling and for swag, he added. David Mills and his wife made a whopping $58 million from the fraud and returned to court for a hearing under the proceeds of Crime Act. The judge ordered the couple to repay the amounts within three months or face another 10 years each in jail. Their identified assets included Tottenham House, worth £2.5 million, a £100,000 wine collection, it's a lot of blue nun, a property portfolio worth more than £1.2 million, foreign properties worth £1 million, a share portfolio worth £1 million, pensions worth £1.3 million, and company assets worth £1.5 million. And following a confiscation hearing, Scorefield was said to have made £681,494.68 from the fraud and was given three months to pay back just 
£332 or face another 18 months behind bars in default. The CPS Special Prosecutor said the case was one of the largest and most complex the Special Fraud Division had ever prosecuted. It involved millions of documents. A lot of the material we had to look at was electronic and of course in this day and age the capacity for electronic media is huge, he said. So we had a very large amount of material to work through and to consider. Lloyd gave somewhat of a comedy statement insisting that it was only the police that had the ability to investigate if there had been a fraud. They said, The trial highlighted criminal actions that bear no reflection on the behaviours of the vast majority of the employees of HBOS at that time or in the group today. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Of course this case made the tabloids with the lurid stories of sex parties and the vast amounts of money being blown on living a lifestyle of excess. What is I think maybe most shocking is the lack of controls at Lloyd's, HBOS, that allowed a rogue banker like Scorefield to defraud the company to such an extent. Are we really surprised that chances like Mills and Bancroft did all they could to indulge in their greed and just think to hell of other people? Sadly, I'm not, and I imagine you aren't either. And if it had been left to Lloyd's and the Serious Fraud Office, without sounding too much like Scooby-Doo, they would have got away with it. It was purely the top-class police work from Thames Valley that led to them being brought to account. But despite the perpetrators going to prison, this doesn't help the real victims in this story, does it? If you run your own business or know someone who does, however big, however small, you will know the sheer blood, sweat and tears that go into their business every day. And to have this taken away from you in such traumatic circumstances must have been absolutely appalling. As Scorfield or Mills sit in their prison cells today as you listen to this podcast, I wonder if they give a thought to all those lives ruined. <laughs> you know, I'm going soft in my old age. Of course they don't. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group, just search, unsurprisingly, UK True Crime. It's many things, but it's never dull. And to support the show, please join me at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash UK True Crime. There's bonus episodes, competitions, behind the scenes stuff, and so much more. For less than a pound a month, and you can cancel at any time. That's patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So that is all for me for another week. The UK's 37th most popular true crime podcaster, the only one with the freedom of Rochdale. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. As we always say, despite all the others, please take it easy. And most of all, stay classy. Cheerio for now.